It's Friday, August 18th, and this is Pennsylvania Legacies, the podcast series from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. I'm Josh Rollerson. Despite what you might have heard, there is at least one major federal agency that's still paying attention to the threat of climate change, the Defense Department. We have built civilization on the implicit premise of climate stability for the last 8,000 years, because we've been in between the ice ages. We've had climate stability, and now we are changing it, and we are changing it very, very rapidly, arguably as rapid or more rapidly than the Earth has ever experienced climate change before. Today we'll be hearing from a Penn State professor and former U.S. naval officer who spent his career helping the military understand and prepare for the security risks posed by a changing climate. It's another talk from PEC's March conference on deep decarbonization. That's coming up on this week's show. First, let's take a look back at what's been happening in environmental policy news over the last week in Pennsylvania. Our guide, as always, is the former secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection, Mr. David Hess. David, welcome back. Thanks very much. Looking back at the week's news, we have been talking ourselves horse, and especially you have been out there talking about DEP permitting in the context of these budget amendments, uh, revenue package amendments. We're going to take a little break from that, if that's okay with you. I'm sure there will be ample opportunity in the future to, to revisit that subject, but uh, I've got some other things to look at. Starting with a decision that came out of the Environmental Hearing Board this week, having just said we're not going to talk about permits, we're going to talk about a, a DEP permit for longwall mining in Greene County. This is the case involving Consol Energy. Can you bring us up to speed on what's happening with that? Yes. This has been a case that's been in the hearing board for some time. It really began in 2014. What the Sierra Club and Center for Coalfield Justice did was challenge several of the expansion permits for the uh, Bailey Mine. It's a a long wall mine, underground mine in Greene County. And what they were alleging was that the permits issued by DEP for these certain expansions were not protective enough of the environment, did not comply with the uh, law and, and regulations. And the, the hearing board came out this week, Tuesday actually, with a sort of a split decision. But it it was important because it sets up, I think, a very clear precedent. In fact, it's probably one of the first times that the hearing board has determined that a permit for a longwall mine that damaged streams was uh, issued by DEP without regard to the state's law and regulations. The, the way those operations work is you, you mine one area and then you apply for an expansion of that mine in the next area. And you have to show that you are protecting streams and how you would protect structures that might be undermined as you mine coal about 800 or 1,000 feet down. What this decision did was actually use the, the brand new Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruling on the environmental rights amendment that uh, was issued in June and said that in one case, one of the expansion permits was issued improperly by the department. Now, the kicker here is that mining went ahead. This was a permit that was issued in 2015, and the underground mining did, in fact, essentially destroy a stream, Poland Run, that feeds into Ryerson Station State Park. So the, the fears of the Sierra Club Center for Coalfield Justice and others 
that they would damage streams by this mining actually came true. So while the uh, decision itself didn't prevent that damage, it, it really laid a marker out there, a significant precedent, that if it stands will mean a higher bar for DEP to jump over in, in order to issue these permits. And again, they relied in part on that brand new Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruling on the Environmental Rights Amendment. Right, and this is among the first of what we're expecting to be many such decisions that will, will invoke that uh, that amendment, that decision from earlier this summer. That's right, and as each decision is made, uh, how they use that Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruling will really tell us how much of an impact it will have. Legal experts are pretty much in agreement that it will have a major impact going forward, and, and not only in cases like this. And the permit at, at issue in this case was one that also prompted some legislative action earlier this summer, a bill that was allowed to become law without the governor's signature after it was approved by the General Assembly. Can you explain the connection there and talk about whether there's going to be any effect from this decision on that legislation, its its future viability? Well, there's a, there's a huge controversy over Senate Bill 624, as it was known earlier this year. Consul Energy, which owns the Bailey Mine that was a subject of this permit decision and a number of different permit appeals, had the bill introduced to change the law related to what protection is available to streams from underground deep coal mining, long wall mining, like in the Bailey Mine. That law was passed, and as you said, Governor Wolf allowed it to become law without his signature. But what the Environmental Hearing Board did in this case was say, look, we have to decide this case based on the law that was in effect at the time. And besides, we think Act 32, as it's now called, changes the program, but that change has to be approved by the federal government. Pennsylvania, along with a lot of other states, has what we call primacy for enforcing federal surface mining and deep coal mining requirements on mine operators in Pennsylvania, and they have to approve any changes. So that change has not been approved, but in any case, the board decided they have to review the case based on the law that was in effect then. So while it didn't have, that new law didn't have any short-term impact, it may, depending on how things uh, turn out, have a longer-term impact. But again, Josh, the, the fact that they relied pretty heavily on the June ruling by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court on the Environmental Rights Amendment, I think may counteract that law in in many respects. I mean, we'll just have to wait and see. You mentioned primacy a moment ago. One other area that Pennsylvania has primacy for now is in enforcement of clean drinking water standards. We've spoken often in the past, uh, usually in the context of DEP being under-resourced and understaffed to meet those kinds of responsibilities about the fact that EPA has now, I think a couple of times, formally warned Pennsylvania that we could lose primacy on drinking water standards. What's the status of that? I understand there's been some uh, a little bit of staffing up at DEP. Are we on a somewhat better footing or heading in that direction? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, DEP has been warned uh, several times over the last five, six years that it doesn't have the staff to do the minimum number of inspections and other actions you need to enforce the federal safe drinking water requirements. DEP in the last couple of weeks gave a progress report to EPA 
They noted that they hired or are hiring a couple new inspectors. They're also running about 43 or 45 of their existing inspectors through additional training to speed their effort to get familiar with all the different requirements you need to have uh, be familiar with to enforce safe drinking water requirements. So those those two things are positive things. But, you know, EPA at the beginning of this year was looking for them to hire 30, 35 more people, not hiring ones and twos. So we'll have to see what EPA thinks about their progress. The EPA earlier in the year even recommended that DEP get emergency funding to put people on the payroll sooner to meet these minimum federal requirements, primarily because DEP's budget has seen drastic cuts over not just the last couple of years, but over the last decade. They've tried to correct that by proposing a brand new fee increase uh, earlier this year, but that's going to take a lot of time to get through the, the system. So we'll have to see how EPA views this progress. On the subject of drinking water, we've got a new bill introduced, I believe, just this last week that would add some new chemicals that I'm not going to try and pronounce to the list of those that are covered under the state's Hazardous Sites Cleanup Act. Can you talk about that legislation and what prompted it? Yes, Senator Senator Greenleaf from Montgomery County introduced a bill that would amend the Hazardous Sites Cleanup Act to include, uh, you have to forgive me, Josh, because this is a chemical name. Uh, I can't pronounce it. Can't help you, Dave. Uh, But it goes by the acronym of PFOA. It was used uh, at military installations, primarily places like the Willow Grove Naval Air Station in Montgomery County for firefighting, fire suppression for airplanes. And last year, there was a big major controversy in Montgomery County about contamination from PFOA in drinking water supplies. One of the things that people wanted to know is, you know, who's going to clean this up? What standard do we have to use to clean it up? And that's why Senator Greenleaf and others, other legislators down in that area in the southeast of Pennsylvania were concerned about making sure someone's going to clean it up. Now, the military is taking an active role in doing cleanup and what's necessary to address the drinking water issues. So, I was happy to see that happen. We'll have to see where that all turns out. Of course, it's just a bill. It has to go through the process. Well, whenever that story develops or any of these others we've been talking about, you'll hear about it first in the PA Environment Daily newsletter or uh, once a week on the PA Environment Digest blog, both maintained by David Hess, the former DEP Secretary for Pennsylvania. Mr. Secretary, thanks again for sharing your expertise with us today. Sure. Thanks for uh, having me on. All this summer, we have been following up on the discussion from PAC's recent climate conference, Achieving Deep Carbon Reductions, held last March in Pittsburgh. We released a white paper in June that summarizes the proceedings. You can download that at the conference website, pac-climate.org. This fall, by the way, we've got some more events planned, and we'll be telling you more about those plans as they develop uh, coming up in the next few weeks. 
Today on the podcast, though, we're going to take you back to the March conference, featuring one of the many presentations from that two-day event. David Titley is professor of meteorology at Penn State University, where he is the founding director of the Center for Solutions to Weather and Climate Risk. He spent 32 years in the U.S. Navy, rising to the rank of Rear Admiral and launching the Navy's Task Force on Climate Change. Here's audio from his keynote presentation in March. Just a little bit of background about me. I am not a climate scientist. I don't pretend to be one. I don't play one on TV. I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn. Uh, This is actually a rain gauge, believe it or not. It's uh, from when I was nine years old. It was my pride and possession. I'm really a lifelong meteorologist, lifelong meaning since probably about kindergarten or so. And that's uh, really all I wanted to do in life was uh, forecast weather. That's not me at Penn State when I was an undergrad, but it kind of could have been because we were mostly in the paper chart uh, business. And as mentioned, I then ended up in the Navy mostly because I needed a way to pay to go to Penn State. So that worked out. I thought I was going to be in for four years. Uh, 32 years later, I finally left. Sometimes it works out that way. And as was mentioned, uh, I then had the honor and opportunity to be NOAA's uh, chief operating officer for uh, for a little while after I left, and, and now, I'm, now I'm up at Penn State. And, you know, for, for what we're doing here, it's kind of nice that we have both meteorology and really some really good climate folks. And somehow we, we talk and we can sort of work the, the intersection there, and, and there's a lot of exciting stuff going on at, really at that intersection. So, yes, I'm going to talk about climate, but I would just ask, and I think everybody here knows that uh, this is not just about climate. You know, climate is one of, but not the only by any means, uh, really driving issue of of this coming century. Uh, Everybody wants, and I would argue has some degree of right to adequate food, uh, adequate water, adequate energy. They're usually tied together, especially around around water. Uh, Whether we like it or not, we are fundamentally a globalized world now, so... What happens uh, for climate and extreme weather impacts in Thailand can and does impact the, uh, the United States economy. So technology marches on. My students probably think I have the phone on the left, but I, I traded it out about two weeks ago, so I don't anymore. Uh, I might add a microwave to this slide now, too, that's listening to it. No, never mind. Uh, we, we won't put a microwave on there. Technology does a lot of things. Uh, And I don't think we've completely thought them through. But one of the things it does, and we're seeing this play out day by day, is it forces transparency, whether we want to or not. So really the the decisions we make, be it as Pennsylvania, on how, whether, and at what rate we decarbonize, to military decisions, to really national and international policy on how we choose or choose not to manage this climate risk, everybody's going to know. Uh, it's not going to stay inside of some smoke-filled room in the back somewhere. Everybody's going to know whether you want them to or not. Uh, and, of course, the population keeps on, on going up. So we're going to deal with this. You know, sometimes I get told, well, you know, climate's changed before with people, and that's true. But when the world population is one or two million, that's a whole lot of difference than a world of six, seven, eight, nine billion people. Uh, And we also tell ourselves we're out of money. And we heard on some of the earlier discussions already today, uh, investments in economics, in fact, do matter. So at the national level and international level, you know, we tell ourselves we're out of of money. I will tell you almost a decade ago when I was asked by the head of the Navy to look at this, 
I kind of looked at this almost as uh, actually one of my favorite jobs in the Navy, and that was as navigator. And it was on this uh, old destroyer. Uh, probably about half the audience remembers there was a world in which, in fact, there was no GPS. You did not pick this thing up, and it told you where you were in the world within two meters. So I actually know how to use one of these things, a sextant. And one of the things you learn as navigator, unless you want to work at Walmart the next week, is pay attention to all the observations and all the evidence, if you will, but don't necessarily lock on to one thing 100%. Use that stuff in between your ears and kind of do that conceptual analysis. And that's really, frankly, how I approached really looking at climate as a risk for the Navy. Uh, And again, we could spend a whole week on the evidence. It is overwhelming. when I talked about this in the Pentagon, sometimes people would say, my God, Titley, did you get religion? And I said, well, I just went to the Church of the Radiative Transfer Equation. Uh, it's pretty well known, and you know, it's well known to you know, the point where it's way over 150 years old. Guys like Fourier and, uh, uh, and, and, and Arnhus on the, on the far right there, you know, they did not... You know, so, so we've known this stuff for really 100, 150-plus years. Uh, And we understand the theory, we understand the observations, and contrary to sometimes what you hear, we actually can predict the future in the climate on the broad scale very well. Frankly, don't let the intelligence community know this, way better than they can. Uh, And there's a reason for that. All we're dealing with is nonlinear fluid mechanics with, you know, kind of crappy initial and boundary conditions. They have to deal with people. And that's a whole lot harder, and especially if they're people who want to deceive you. So relative to how our country plans for much of the future, the climate community has a way better insight as to what that future is going to look like than many other, be it economists, be it intelligence professionals, political scientists, not because we're particularly smarter. Well, maybe. But it's really because we're dealing with physics and not with people. And that's, that's kind of an important thing. So really, just, just quickly, climate risk the way I think about it, because you know, who has time to read through the you know, one-meter stack of IPCC reports? I try to put it fairly simply. And I think about it as people, as water, and as change. Uh, I say people because a lot of times the climate does get framed as an environmental issue. And usually when it's framed as an environmental issue, you think of not of polar bear plunges, but what? That poor, lonely polar bear floating out in the Arctic. Uh, I have nothing against the polar bears. I have absolutely nothing against the environment. But do you think we're really going to frankly, fundamentally change the world's energy system for the polar bears? And I would argue if we were, we would have started that quite a long time ago, and we haven't. So I don't think that's really the right framing. But it is about us. It's about all of us here, you and me, our family, our parents, our children, our grandchildren, uh, people in our towns, people in Pennsylvania, uh, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, even State College. We're all going to be impacted by this. Water is an, arguably a pretty good integrating principle. Uh, it's not that we're going to all run out of water, but it gets fundamentally redistributed. And I tell people it's too much and too little, wrong place, wrong time. Uh, it's salty where it used to be fresh. It's liquid where it used to be solid. Uh, your feet are now wet where they used to be dry. Uh, those are some pretty big changes. And even the chemistry of the ocean itself is changing. And Neil told us why. It's because the oceans are taking up almost half of the CO2. And if there's anything about climate change that scares me, it's not the climate piece. Uh, anybody here from either San Diego or Hawaii? 
Okay. They're the only places I know that have ideal climate. You know, we're in Pittsburgh. Look outside. I'm in State College. I don't see the sun for four months out of the year. Uh, But it's the change part. We've known, we've had, while we may not have all had ideal climate, we've had stable climate. So we've known when to plant. We've known when to harvest. We know what grows. We know what critters stay south of us so we don't have to worry about them. We know if we build a port like New York or Boston or London that the rivers and the ocean basically stays where they are so we can, we can build on that. If you think about it, we have had implicit – we have built civilization – on the implicit premise of climate stability for the last 8,000 years, because we've been in between the ice ages. We've had climate stability. And now we are changing it, and we are changing it very, very rapidly, arguably as rapid or more rapidly than the Earth has ever experienced climate change before. And we're going to do it with those 6, 7, 8 billion people. Okay, when you sort of step it down to why – so why does the DOD care? Is this still like something else – Uh, The Department of Defense cares because it changes the very operating environment. The Arctic is probably the poster child for that, but it's not only the Arctic. Our infrastructure changes. So I was from the Navy. You know, we tend to put most of our bases at sea level. It's kind of a ship thing. So if the sea level changes, you know, we're not the Air Force. I can't just put everything in Minot, North Dakota. I said that once, and in the back of the room, it was, sure enough, the city manager of Minot, North Dakota, was there. I kid you not. You know, he invited the Navy to come, but I'm not sure we're going to take him up on that offer. And then finally, the, uh, the fact that the climate is changing and that we are seeing increases in droughts, and when it rains, it rains harder, and yes, it sounds like a paradox, but it's actually this is the way it's going to be, uh, can make places in the world that are already not great, think Syria, think North Africa, and potentially push them over the edge, if you will, and we've seen the tragedy of the catastrophe that is Syria. There is a climate link to that. It didn't just cause it. It's not if-then, but there is a climate link. So that's why fundamentally the U.S. Navy, most militaries around the world actually are paying attention to climate. It changes the environment, it impacts their own infrastructure, and it can make bad things worse. Uh, So in the Arctic, the Arctic ice is... uh, is, is frankly disappearing. It's not only disappearing in the extent, but it's disappearing in its volume. Uh, as recent as maybe 15 years ago, still 40-50% of the Arctic was covered by what we call multi-year ice, hard, thick ice. That number's gone down to 10 or 15%. That's, that, ladies and gents, is basically a state change. It's a state change in, in what's in the Arctic. Uh, what that does, and again, we could talk all afternoon about the impacts of that, but sort of the, the bottom line is this engenders all kinds of human activity that just 20, 25 years ago we wouldn't have been thinking about, be it tourism on a large scale, be it resource extraction, not only fossil fuels but also also minerals. Ultimately, do the shipping routes change? Now, that's probably still at least 10, 15, 20 years in the future, uh, but the shipping routes will likely change when we have reliably ice-free summers, and those are coming. Uh, you know, all the way to, you know, how do we deal with, there are still a couple territorial issues in, in, the, in the Arctic. So those are the things people usually think about. I'll just show you a couple slides of things in the Arctic that people don't always think about. This is not out of episode two of Star Wars, uh, but this is actually up on the island of Svalbard, Norway. Svalbard is that island almost off of Greenland. It's about 80 degrees north. I'll bet a couple people at least have, uh, have been up there. One of the things that Svalbard has 
is the ability to basically monitor every single polar orbiting satellite on every single orbit. And it's because they go over the pole, of course, so they don't all go over uh, the NASA stations at, like, say, Wallops Island or Singapore or anything like that, but they all go over Svalbard, and you can basically monitor and control uh, space from Svalbard. It's Norwegian, but there's something called the Treaty of Svalbard. So while the Norwegians say they have sovereignty, there is a treaty that says anybody can be there. So the Russians have a research station there. The Chinese have research stations uh, on Svalbard. Lots of people do. The Americans do not. We probably should, actually. Uh, The waters off Svalbard, nobody's really defined who has them. And this is a place the Russians like to push on. So we visited Svalbard, and a week later... The deputy prime minister, who had been banned by sanctions for visit any place in the uh, in Europe, shows up, and you know how the Norwegians found out he was on Svalbard? TV. And you know what the Russians said? Deal with it. So you're only about one or two miscalculations away from something kind of going pretty bad here. Norway's a NATO member. You start invoking Article 5. Do we really start a serious conflict with one of our best, uh, not with, but in support of one of our best NATO allies because of this ambiguity up here in the Arctic? And it's not just a rock. It's a rock with a lot of strategic importance. So that's one thing that not a ton of people think about. Another one, uh, Greenland. Greenland, of course, right now is a territory, although a self-governing territory of Denmark, but there's a lot of people on Greenland who want to be independent, and they're looking for ways to do it. Up until the oil and gas price collapse, they were looking at uh, fossil fuel extraction. Now they're looking at uranium. Who's going to do that? Is that going to be the Chinese? The Chinese have put a lot of money already into Greenland. Uh, That changes a lot of the geopolitics quite a bit. So I'm not saying if that's good or bad, but these are things that we should probably be thinking through in this fundamentally changed Arctic. Other things, I talked about infrastructure. So, you know, again, without putting the obligatory picture of Bangladesh up here, here are a couple things that the, uh, the military cares about. On the left, that's the island of someplace called Diego Garcia. My guess is about half the people have heard of it here. Little tiny atoll in the just south of the equator to the south and west of India. Uh, it is, I mean, if there's a middle of nowhere in the Indian Ocean, this is it. But it's British territory, uh, but the Brits let the U.S. military do quite literally anything we want to do there as long as we're nice to the birds and the fish and the turtles. So we're nice to the birds and the fish and the turtles. Uh, Every significant uh, Department of Defense operation in Southwest Asia in the last, I would say, 40 years has used in some way, shape, or form that island. It's about one to two meters on a good day above sea level. What happens when that goes? When I was in the Pentagon and I asked that question, the, usually the person I was having the meeting with looked at their watch and realized they had an urgent meeting someplace else and, and wanted to stop. Because we don't have a good answer. But, it's, but I'll tell you, the answer is going to come with a cost, and it's going to be in the Bs. It's not going to be millions. In the uh, top right there, that's uh, the Air Force is building a space fund. That's great. We need to know what's up in space. Totally support that. That's wonderful. Uh, that's the island of Kwajalein. Uh, they, and they're going to put one of their upward-looking radars on Kwajalein. All sounds good. Uh, did a 250-page environmental impact study. Guess what they never looked at? Sea level. 
So some, you know, postdoc says, hey, guess what? You know, your 50-year project there, well, it's going to last about 20 if we're lucky. Uh, so now the contractors are pointing at the Air Force, who points at the acquisition community, who points at everybody else to say, well, it wasn't really our fault. That's a billion dollars, ladies and gents, that we probably have kind of screwed up there. And then my, my picture on the lower right there, this is my no good deed goes unpunished uh, slide. This is Norfolk Naval Base. Uh, no kidding, that is Norfolk Naval Base. Hurricanes coming up. Navy Oceanography sees this. We get the ships all out on time. So what happens? That means these sailors kiss their spouses goodbye, wish them luck with the hurricane, go down to the piers, and drive the ships out. Uh, nobody thought about the fact that the piers were going to now be under two-plus meters of water, and smaller and smaller and weaker and weaker hurricanes are causing basically the same effect. So they kind of got caught by surprise. And Norfolk is kind of ground zero for sea level rise there. So we care. I mentioned the geostrategic risk. Uh, Syria really is a, a quite a long story. Starts actually 40, 45 years ago with Assad uh, coming in. He wanted to be self-sufficient in wheat. Now, you would hope that you would have advisors saying, hey, boss, you know we're in the eastern Mediterranean. It's kind of a dry place. Maybe this isn't the smartest thing. But I think the advisors, because they stayed as advisors, said, President, you are a smart, powerful, and handsome man, and that is a great idea. We'll get right on it. And they did. And they became self-sufficient and weak. But they did it by draining the aquifers and draining their rivers. That's great right up until it isn't. So you end up then with a couple droughts, uh, then you have the Iraq War, nothing to do with climate whatsoever, but it dumps a million people into the country of refugees. Then you have a really big drought, uh, which does have a climate fingerprint on it, and now your farmers, your own farmers, have nothing. Now, this is Assad. It's not like he specializes in taking care of his people. So now you have almost a million and three-quarters desperate people between refugees and internally displaced persons with nothing. And then you get groups like al-Qaeda Syria, like al-Qaeda Iraq, which became into ISIS. It says, we'll take care of your family. We will feed you. We will give you water for you and your wife and your kids. You know, it's easy for us to all sit here. We've had our lunch. We're kind of full. Uh, says, well, geez, you know, why would you do that? If you have nothing, that's a hard choice. And they're able to recruit. So can you predict that out of climate change? I would argue probably not. Uh, but you can say that the risk of things going south in a hurry goes way up when you already have unstable and not great governance, such as Syria, and then you add a climate component. So I talk about this as a link in a causal chain. Uh, and happy to talk offline if, if there's any more questions. So let me wrap up here just with really some solutions. And yes, this is a super boring picture. I know that. It's something called a Department of Defense Directive. Uh, it's actually online. It hasn't disappeared yet. Uh, and it's really good. And if the Department of Defense actually does this, this was signed out about a year ago, uh, it, it, it would really be good. We'll see if they, if they do it. I don't know if you've heard or not, but it's actually in the news right now that Secretary Mattis, uh, in response to uh, questions from his congressional testimony, uh, written questions, he basically said, hey, climate is one of the risks I've got to deal with. Uh, and that's tremendous because he's in the cabinet, and of course that is what we understand, not the position of every other cabinet member in, in this administration. But Secretary Mattis, General Mattis, is kind of calling you know, facts on the ground. 
And he sees this as an issue, and he is now on the record to the Congress as that is. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for that. Uh, I'll, ju- I'll just kind of just about close with, with these. You can, you can read these comments, but, you know, both Admiral Nimitz and, and Secretary Schultz, who we've already heard about a little bit this morning, I don't think either would be really characterized as either hardcore environmentalists or tree huggers or anything, uh, but they both have had to, in their respective careers, manage very, very large risks. I would argue World War II in the Pacific was a pretty large risk. Uh, Secretary Schultz, in addition to we all think of him as Secretary of State, he was also Director of Office of Management and Budget, so he kind of understands money. Uh, and they both understand taking out whether you call it insurance policies or taking precautions. We need to do that, and we need to do that soon. So this gentleman here was alleged to have said, I'm pretty sure he didn't because it turns out Churchill never said anything with uh, historians look at him, but he was alleged to have said uh, that Americans can always be counted upon to do the right thing after exhausting every other possibility. So uh, I guess we're going to maybe exhaust some more possibilities for a little bit longer, but I hope not. I, I really hope not. We don't know how this will play out, but I would certainly ask that uh, we all certainly express how we feel uh, to our elected officials. Uh, I tell people Congress will not lead on this, but they can be led, and they'll be led by us. They do know who their boss is, and it's us. Thank you very much. You just heard an edited version of remarks by Penn State professor and retired U.S. Navy Admiral David Titley speaking at the conference organized by PEC last spring on a deep decarbonization of Pennsylvania's electricity sector. You can view the full talk and video from all of our sessions at the conference website. Again, it's peck-climate.org. It's also where to get your free download of our white paper released in June. It provides an overview of the issues addressed in the conference and a roadmap for the next phase of that conversation, which is just getting started. We will be following up in the weeks ahead with a deep dive into the subject of carbon pricing, one of several possible pathways to reducing Pennsylvania's carbon emissions by upwards of 80 or 90 percent by 2050. So keep an eye on peck-climate.org for that. And also check back at the main PEC website, PECPA.org, where past episodes of Pennsylvania Legacies are housed, along with more audio, video, text, and uh, other materials documenting PEC's work across the state. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at PECPA and on Facebook as well, Pennsylvania Environmental Council. If you're new to Pennsylvania Legacies, welcome. Glad to have you. You can find our complete back catalog at PECPA.org. If you've been with us for a while and you like what you're hearing, first of all, thanks. And secondly, please help us spread the word about this project. Maybe recommend the show to a colleague or a friend. We appreciate every tweet, every Facebook post. And, of course, nothing beats word of mouth. So, again, thanks for listening and thanks for helping get the word out about this show. We'll have another one next Friday. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. And as always, thanks for listening.